And now we are going to continue with our interesting conversations regarding uh, social justice, racial justice, and the struggle for universal justice in our country with uh, two esteemed guests that I'm so glad could join us tonight. Reverend Scott Marks, who is the leader of New Haven Rising. He is the director of that organization. He is the organizing director and chair of the Black Leadership Committee of Unite Here, which is a national union of food and hospitality workers. And, and that union selected him and, and sent him to organize low and middle wage workers in Las Vegas, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Memphis, and I believe also to oversee the campaign to try to support voter registration and voter turnout in Georgia for the special elections on uh, January 5th. We also are joined by Marcy Lynn Jones, who is co-chair of Ward 30 in New Haven and is an activist in many venues, including New Haven Rising and the community organizing connected to Unite Here unions at Yale. And she is a member of the People's Center and director of the YCL and a delegate for the Connecticut CPUSA. So thank you both for joining us tonight. My pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having us. I'm well, Scott. It's good to hear your voice. <laughs> As I begin to uh, get into the topic of the evening, this might be a good moment to turn to Marcy and, and just tell us this amazing thing happened in Georgia. I mean, we first spent two or three days waiting for the presidential ballots to be counted, recounted, recounted again. They still came out with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being the winners. But then the special election was looming right away. There was this unbelievable sense of urgency because we all knew that if the Democrats did not control the Senate, that Joe Biden was going to go the way of pretty much what happened to Barack Obama after 2010. And he was going to be basically waiting around for a bunch of miscreants to uh, start behaving like human beings, those being Mitch McConnell's minions. So, Marcy, tell us how you got involved in this remarkable campaign, which you had to reboot right after the fight, all the voter turnout struggles and everything else you had to voter suppression issues you had to deal with in Georgia how you got involved in the campaign that kicked in right after that election to try to prepare for January 5th when the special senatorial elections happened. I had absolutely no choice. It was an awakening. It was time for people to understand that one person, Joe Biden, was not going to be enough. And it also gave us an opportunity to explain to people how government works. So knowing what I know what I know, and now having an actual incident to explain. The administrative administration for Obama was held back quite often. And unless we did this thing that we needed to do in Georgia, it was going to be the same thing. Nothing was going to change. Everything fell into place. You know, Mitch McConnell taking food out of people's mouths, people paying attention to Mitch McConnell, made it even easier to give blatant examples of why it had to happen. I honestly will tell you that when I was asked to go, the person that asked me, Jamie, which that mentioned, was startled. He was like, wait, wait, you're going? Because he was asking me for people to go. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm not going to send people. I'm going to send myself. So I had to get involved. But it wasn't just you. I mean, it was there was, as I understand it, there was 70 or 
so people from New Haven yes. <laughs> who, who, who made that trip. So tell us about that experience. I mean, how, how did it all come together? I mean, you, you all, did you all have to get there separately in cars, or did you travel in buses? Did you go through orientation before you left well, Connecticut, or did you have training United when you got here did a tremendous job, and I'm sorry, Scott, I hope I'm not interrupting you, but I'm going to tell you from my point of view. Unite here went above and beyond, and it cost them a lot to send us, but at the same time, they kept us safe. So when I got there, I was with one person. I was in my own car. I was in my own room. I worked with my own team. We social distanced throughout the whole time. Newcomers understood how important it was, the strategies for people riding with other people, one person in the front, one person in the back, pretty much no fraternizing because we were able to talk to each other on the phone. Mm-hmm. It was like a new reality to canvassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was important for yeah, us to stay safe when we knocked on those doors. If we did not knock on those doors and know that we were safe, that alone made us more active because we had to do what we had to do knowing that we weren't going to their doors and being afraid of what's on the other side. They gave us strength through Zooms, Scott is very inspirational on a regular basis. I know you know that. But just knowing how important it was and being able to explain to people how government worked for the very first time, there were people that didn't have any idea. So, Yeah, we want to get into the ex- mm-hmm. actual experience of, of walking up to a stranger's door and uh, having a conversation that probably the owner of that apartment or house was, was probably not, not all that anxious to have, given COVID and just the, the whole sense of alienation from the political process of so many people. But so, Scott, do you have any, any, anything to add? The one, to, thing that, the, one quick, yeah. the, one, the one quick thing that I wanted to say about that is, uh, like, we, we were asked to go to Memphis, a thousand people. We ended up getting 2,000 people. So our IU know we had black leadership, some special thing to get people uh, moved to go. I wanted to drop back to the presidential, basically in July in Arizona, Nevada, and in Florida. It wasn't as successful with Biden and Harris in Florida, but we did get the $15 minimum wage in some municipal races that we wanted to win there. And That's then right. at the ninth hour, I got called to go to Philadelphia. We started out with the experts to actually figure out how could we actually do this safely. And at that time, there were no other unions or organizations that were prepared to get out on the ground. And so our union, Unite Here, friends and family uh, and community organizations from Nevada, Arizona, Florida, and now Philly, basically took all that knowledge of how, same thing Marcy just said, how we were gonna stay safe. And we put it, dropped a thousand people on the ground in Georgia. And I was, you know, really proud because Connecticut, our, from, from this state under our leadership, uh, was some of the top numbers of delivering people to make that thousand people that actually knocked on doors. So the sort of seriousness that we took around the professionals, the experts, and really believing the science to have a safe way to actually knock on doors because we yeah. started out on phones, Marcy, you remember, and we had millions of phone calls that were backing up the door knock, but the mm-hmm. sort of uh, the deliverables from the door knocking versus the phone calls were so, you know, substantial we had to 
figure out a way that we were going to do that. And thank God there were others who actually got confidence and like took some of our protocols to be safe to get in on the door at the time of the pandemic. Let's not have this conversation go on. I call this moment the moment of the great reveal where black and brown people are dying more than all others. Way over half of our union was laid off and they stood up to fight, which was a, I've been through a lot in my life, but it was a a transformational moment for me. So that's the only thing I would add there. I'm so proud of the sort of outcomes and the number one thing, the safety of the people. Well, had faith before fear and didn't even know it. Before fear, yeah. <laughs> it's got us through it. <laughs> well, I think you, that you said that word, the, the great reveal. You know, the fact that the statistics were coming in and are still coming in and getting worse. That you know, black and Latino people are getting sick and dying in exponentially higher numbers than uh, others. Uh, and right now, in this state, in places where you know the affluent communities, like I just heard numbers tonight, populations for seniors are in, you know, the suburban towns are, you know, 40%, 45% of the seniors are vaccinated. And Bridgeport, a microcosm of uh, New Haven, is only 15%. And we had the mayor's yeah. state of the city addressed. There's a real push to have that. But it's still being revealed. And I like breaking through the COVID pressure and getting on those doors and changing the Senate, basically, we are really focused on having some real, real change that are set in place on purpose, the anti-blackness that exists in our governmental laws and the immigrant policy. There was an executive order signed today, but some way for us to actually demand and push and not repeat another 08 if there was ever a time for us to organize, you know, the time is now. And to push, you know, the government and places like Yale University and folks who are doing pretty well through this period. The market is holding strong. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to quote a statistic or two and then get Marcy's reaction to this and and get her some of her boots on the ground perspective in how these numbers were actually achieved. And I'm looking at uh, my paper here and it says 1.5 million doors were knocked on by Unite Here canvassers in Georgia. That's kind of a mind-boggling statistic. And each day, union members, that volunteers who came from, I guess, among those thousand, and, and maybe they came from other places too, so there might have been more than a thousand, had 15,000 face-to-face conversations with voters about the Senate runoff. So that's each and every one of you were having just thousands of conversations. And Unite Here identified and made voting plans with 250,000 voters who supported Warnock and Ossoff. That is to say that you estimate that 250,000 people were, were successfully incentivized to go to the polls and assisted in going to the polls, I, th- I think, by your efforts. Can you just give us a sense of what that experience was like the first day when you, when you had to go to your first door and face a complete stranger? <laughs> uh, you had no, no clue as to what their reaction was going to be. But, of course, you had many different reactions. So give us a sense of, of what happened. Right. And I definitely want you to do that. But I definitely, that we had the fear of the COVID, but then also 
like I just want to remind us in the presidential and in the runoffs, we were going to the neighborhoods that like Marcy was saying you're here that was hearing it for the first time and there was violence it was um black men were very nervous about going to white doors at night but then there was also the sort of crime and violence or the sort of guns on both sides from the drug violence and then also from the, the sort of people from the I guess the best way to say it is from the Trump uh side of things that mm-hmm. really believe in uh, that they were trying to stop the steal. Sorry, Marcy, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, I don't know if you know that I, I was in Philly for one weekend. You know, I just went in for one weekend to help out, and I came right back. But my experience, and I'm not, t- I'm not even going to tell you the first day, this is my days. I'm no stranger to strangers. To me, if I'm coming to your door to improve your life, you're my family. I have this cheerful approach to canvassing as is. So I think a lot of it was like my first person that I literally knocked on the door and spoke with was like, everybody over here is going to vote for Warnock Oswald. And I'm like, okay. I said, but I introduced myself and I need to explain to you that how important it is for you to have a plan to vote. I understand that. You're saying you're going to vote, but what is your plan? And that pretty much opens up another door that they're not thinking about. Oh, I'm just going to go early uh, to this place, and then you find out that place is not actually going to be open. So having the conversations were easier for those people. I had some people that, you know, would come to the window and just talk to me through the window, and I had people that pretty much wouldn't even answer the door, but you could hear that they're home. So my first experience was actually with a uh, woman who is a pastor, and her son didn't live there who I was looking for. She wasn't on the list, but we had a great conversation about the difference in her day and the difference in my day and the difference in the kids now. And I explained to her, I said, that you know that the millennials are really doing a lot more than they've ever done, so we can't give up on them. So that's pretty much my first experience with, you know, knocking on the doors. In addition to that, there were a lot of youth that were out there. Those youth out there, when you have a, a teenager or a tween knocking at your door saying, you know, we need this, sometimes the elders will listen a little bit better. I think we had a lot more people go to early voting that would have because of our effort. You know, I've done some canvassing in Connecticut for different things, and uh, I'll tell you something. We have done it uh, in, in pairs, so we just this, this before COVID. We, we would go out in pairs to, to canvas, and I would always say, I want to go with a woman. I don't want two men going to a stranger's door any time of day or night. It, it's just not going to work that well. And I tell you that women have a special gift in terms of being able to make strangers comfortable. And when they approach a door, it's a different thing than a, a single man or, or a couple of men. But I, I just wanted to interject that because I, I've seen your face in, in pictures and I, I can imagine that you bring a special gift. Marcy is a convinced, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's, it's more than just rhetoric, you know what I mean? It's kind of a a certain kind of human quality and charm and charisma. I want to get actually down to nuts and bolts and ask you, like, were you, as an African-American person, were you specifically targeting black renters and homeowners, or was it more random and you went to some house, white household? It was random. It was truly random. Uh-huh. And um, I don't see myself as targeting a color. 
mm-hmm. I'm targeting a human. So, I mean, I, I have a whole different outlook on those type of things. But, yes, we were in some of the areas where people were less likely to vote because they felt as though the system wasn't working for them anyway. But I had to exactly. work harder yep. to talk to those people, the yep. ones that would talk to you and, and the ones and, that wouldn't run their house and lock, close the door, you know? What were some of the the things that you heard that they were, ah, no, I'm not going to do this. This is, I mean, like, how, how did you... Well, I had one gentleman... You know, say to me, oh, I, I, I'm voting for Purdue in my head. And I said, excuse me? I explained to them the situations, multiple situations where there was factual evidence that was shown that he didn't care about people. And we had a decent conversation. I even had the Republican-Democrat conversation with people that, were, you know, look like me. And having those conversations, you would take... The facts of just sitting, I really watched a lot of the news, and then I did my research daily. Because every day somebody asked me a question I might not have been able to answer, but through great leads and through great other people that lived in Georgia, they would explain to me, okay, this is, you know, this is the answer to this. I never encountered one person that did not want to talk to me, even if they didn't want to hear my why Warnock and why Ossoff were the better choice, or they didn't want to understand the Senate, I would take something personal that I saw around them or they mentioned and use that. And that was the better way to deal with those type of people. Do you think that the main problem, let's say, with black voters, potential voters, was that they were just, you know what, it just doesn't make any difference if I vote or if I don't vote. I've been through this for 50 years. I'm not part of the game, and I don't want to be part of the game. Was that kind of alienation the main issue that you confronted with uh, African I confronted that often. Yeah. Yeah, I would have that often. I would have a lot of conversations with the gentlemen, you know, people walking into stores without masks and things like that. I would have conversations about that. And that would come up. Oh, that, that's a, you know, a hoax or whatever. And I'd say, okay, so now you sound like Donald Trump. And so you don't want to protect me, but I'm willing to protect you. So you, it depends on the situation. But, I, but as far as people not realizing that their vote matters, we were in Georgia. Think about that. We were in Georgia. Yeah. Use John Lewis's words. If you're going to be in trouble, it's going to be good trouble. So why not go to the poll, cast your vote, and see what happens. I had people that didn't even vote in the presidential election that, that after I was done, they were like, this is more important. I said, so you're casting your vote for Joe Biden. You're just a little late. <laughs> the, one, the one thing there is that in some of the neighborhood low-capacity voters, man, hard neighborhoods, gunshots, we got to move people mm-hmm. out of the area, and the way that uh, the sort of government had you know, treated those communities, it was almost like, what mm-hmm. on earth would we possibly be voting for? Then we went to another community, go to these, like, uh, you know, mid-sized mansions, and every person, you go, door you go to, there are black people there, and then over there, and some of the problems that we ran into there, no, 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 I'm not uh, trusting my ballot to go early, and we were really counting on mm-hmm. uh, uh, early vote. And they were saying, no, I just, I've, I've always walked in the door to sort of like, you know, uh, you know, do the, do the color of the circle or whatever the case is. And so convincing 
people to sort of, uh, with all the sort of rhetoric that was going on, it was, you know, on all the different levels. And so it, it was, and like if you walk to some of these doors and look around some of the neighborhoods mm-hmm. and hear the rhetoric about why on earth should I vote, it, 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 like you really have to push yourself because it was um, something that we hadn't done. And I was so proud of, we went to the places where people don't usually go because mm-hmm. they feel as though the number of votes in the history, it's not worth the time. And we mm-hmm. found it to be worth the time and the voter education and the voter engagement mm-hmm. and the number of people that wanted to volunteer and, uh, you know, the numbers that Ossoff and um, Warnock got was so much further beyond, uh, you know, Biden's uh, 12,000 mm-hmm. 12, votes because people, you know, by that kind of push and wave and education. And one thing that we were doing for the folks knocking on the doors, we did, um, you know, uh, racial justice training and we talked about something new. We tried the history of that area and uh, the voter suppression. Just Stacey Abrams was robbed of the governorship and mm-hmm. to be there working along with her and the work that had already been done. And it's not you just jump up and do that kind of work. You know, Black Pack and Stacey Abrams' group and a number of them had been putting in that work for about 12 years. We had our annual MLK, MLK and we had um, one of the, the coordinators of America Votes come to our event, and they you know, gave that sort of uh, scenario. And that's what we're trying to do here to sort of build up more voter education, training more people to get involved and not just believe the hype that the vote don't count. Just want to reintroduce you both. Speaking with Scott Marks, he's the leader of New Haven Rising and many other organizations where he does groundbreaking and very, very effective Organizing around social justice, racial justice, income inequality issues in uh, based in New Haven, and Marcy Lynn Jones, who is co-chair of Ward 30 in New Haven and uh, an activist on many fronts. She's also a member of New Haven Rising, and they were describing this amazing experience, transformative for everybody, including, I'm sure, you guys, but the people in in Georgia themselves, and and that's the next question I want to ask is, what do you think the afterlife of your efforts is going to be? Because it's only two years until, I think... um, do they? Do both Senate uh, Ossoff and, and Warnock have to stand for election in two years, or is it just one of them? Yes, uh, Warnock, because there was a special election for Loeffler, and okay, so in yes. two years we got mm-hmm. Warnock. So you barely can turn around and and uh, catch your breath before the, the, the whole process starts again. Just wondering, how much consciousness raising with a lasting effect do you think took place during this uh, this lead up to the special elections on January fifth, I think Georgia. I feel um, I, I feel a great amount of confidence about Georgia because a lot of folks would think, "Oh, let's all just take a thousand people and go down to Georgia." And the deal is the sort of twelve years worth of work. Um, Stacey Abrams is there, uh, you know, uh, and so the, the 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 deal is. I think that. You know, 
in order to have that kind of change, two years is too short of a window. But four years is, you know, close to impossible. But there, you know, are going to be opportunities in some of those same uh, states, Nevada, there's Arizona coming up in two years, and Georgia. But I do believe that um, the way that this sort of victory was captured, it actually added on to the ongoing movement that they have in place there. How could we get that going in other places? And I know from my personal experience, um, you know, founding the Connecticut Center for a New Economy and New Haven Rising, it takes real time to build um, that type of infrastructure. But I feel very confident about um, Georgia continuing on the sort of um, work that they're doing. Remember, when we showed up there, it was a blue state. We won that for uh, Harris and Biden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 28 years a red state, never a black or a Jew in the Senate. <laughs> 28 years. Yeah, that's that's incredible. You know, I mean, we know that Stacey Abrams has superpowers, but I'm just wondering the structure of the organizing that she did over many years leading up to her own run for governor and then for, to this presidential election and the victories in the Senate. Is that something that is a template that you can take to Florida, that you can take to South Carolina, North Carolina. Are those skills and those methodologies, does it take somebody with supernatural powers like Stacey Abrams to make it work? Or is it really just a, a question of knowing how to do it and getting it done? I think it's the latter. It's And, and the same thing with King. King got a lot of the credit. Marcy had said it, the millennials were like prepared to sort of, um, you know, like not as intact with the race the way that it's going in the past. So I think that more people are getting involved. Young people are actually um, pushing forward. So I definitely think that it's something that could happen anywhere as long as you have the leadership and the program to bring it forward. And it's just a real blessing when you, you know, have someone like a Stacey Abrams. But it, you know, she was uh, not the right team and the right. And last question to you both, and I've kept you a long time already. Just want to just have you reflect on the the movement for Black Lives that burst into the streets with the police killings of, of so many people, culminating in in the, basically the lynching of George Floyd. Can you give a sense of what that movement meant in terms of consciousness raising? of African-American people and other people of color in the South as this movement, which was probably the largest turnout situation since the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And not to mention the fact that, that it was remarkably largely an interracial movement that took place over the spring and summer after George Floyd was lynched. What effect did that have on your efforts and what effect might it have going forward as that movement, which is somewhat eclipsed now by all the crazy events that have happened since, that will probably reemerge in a manifestation on the streets again? Yes. Well, I don't know if you know this. I'm one of the mentors for the Black Lives Matter movement in New Haven. There are people that are using Black Lives Matter that aren't actually part of Black Lives Matter, and I am so happy about that because 
it starts the conversation. And I always tell people that. And now they really get to see. All lives can't matter till black lives matter. So it's very important that everything happened the way it was supposed to be. Now remember, cameras were there, weren't there before. So this was going on, but now we have the cameras. But we're still having injustices, even with the cameras. So, I mean, it goes back to an Emmett Teal situation, where his mom was like, I'm leaving this casket open so you can see. Mm-hmm. So now we're taking the videos, and I'm leaving these on social media so you can see. People woke up that had never woke up before, but they were seeing it, just not in that magnitude. And I think that the other thing to consider is the fact that even though the initial reaction and the explosive turnout reaction of, of, of so many millions of people to George Floyd's killing was, was about police violence and reforming the police, that that set and triggered a, a discussion about systemic change on all levels. If you tweak the rules for the police... You know, as soon as that Band-Aid wears off and the disinfectant <laughs> loses its power, you're going to be back with, with more problems from the police. So it, it really, I think, just as the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement did in 2011, it started a conversation about the entire rotten structure upon which this economy and government institutions and, and other social institutions are built. And so I think that that is something that I personally, as a a radical (laughs) activist myself, take great heart in, the fact that the the movement was, to use a cliche now, intersectional on so many levels. And I'm wondering what you think needs to be done to push that notion and to keep the intersectionality being in the forefront of the movement. I think that we're, like, coming into a time um, where we are having younger and younger people that are getting involved. And I support that uh, leadership and, like, the uh, George Floyd, you know, I can't breathe, um, a cry to its death for a mama, somehow um, ignited, like you said, people returning to the street, you know, in numbers beyond the civil rights movement across the world. And I believe that the police was a focus, but the police are sort of like in place to protect the sort of laws and structures that exist that are having people get poorer and poorer and some folks get richer and richer. And I do believe, you know, like I, like here in New Haven, I was uh, never so proud. We were at the police department and the number of white people along with black people and black people up on the steps of the police department and taking over the uh, uh, 90, 95, the highway, it was just, just an amazing event. And I think that we're off to a good start. But I'm calling on people. we got to go upstream, further upstream. Mm-hmm. The police is a one portion of this, but the way the wealth is being distributed in this country, and basically I can feel that, you know, with that happening and so uh, fewer people becoming mega gazillionaires, people are getting sick and tired. The middle class is being white. And I just think that it's getting harder and harder for us to win anything. So this victory that we got in, and like a lot of people, they can talk the talk, but I really believe in how are we building the committee 
and getting out on the street, taking the risk of losing your life, COVID, mm-hmm. to sort of knock on doors because I think that there's a thirst for real change, and that's not going to just happen from white people or black people. It's going to happen when we call on the fusion movement. Everybody in, nobody out. And so the thing is, I, I, I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful. But one quick thing, at the end of the year, we usually do the end of the year, how is the year. It was one way, you know, in November. But once we won in January, we had another go around what did the victory of, you know, the runoffs felt like. And what it, you know, the things that I heard some young people say and dream and imagine was just um, remarkable. I'm hopeful that we're on our way to real systemic change. And it's not going to happen because we can talk fancy, but can we walk fancy and put boots on the ground and actually elect the kind of people that are going to be there and stand for us? Biden said, black people, you've always been with me. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to back up labor. And it's one thing to say it. we got to, like, hold them to it and continue, not just for two years. Where are we going to get more Senate seats? D.C., Washington, D.C. Hello. That would become a state. That would go right with us. And then the other thing is what we're going for is the third reconstruction. And basically we've proven that we're willing to put our lives on the line to have that kind of change. Talking is one thing, but doing is a whole nother, and that's what we got to do. Do the work. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Realistically, boots on the ground. Let's go. Started. We're just getting started. I love it. You say that and recognize that when Obama got elected, we all went home and said, we did it. It's done. Those eight years, well, 12 years, really, with, with Trump being the spanking that we had to take for our inaction, that has taught a lot of people that lesson that you just stated, that the real battle for systemic change starts now with somebody who's in there who has promised to listen and has indicated actually in his first couple of weeks that he's actually prepared to take some political chances and enact some things that could lead to other things. So I'm very encouraged to hear your assessment about that. Given the experience you both have had for decades, that's balm to my ears. And I want to thank you both, Reverend Scott Marks and Thank you, uh, Marcy Lynn uh, Jones, for uh, being with us tonight for this conversation. Thank you much. Thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure. Be well and stay safe. Thank you, Marcy. (laughs) Good night, all. And so there we had Scott Marks and Marcy Lynn Jones, activists from Unite Here, the Food and Hospitality Workers Union, National Union, and its local organizations based in New Haven that sent from Connecticut 70 people to Georgia to be door knockers and cover literally hundreds of thousands of of doors that they were able to make contact with, no doubt went a long way in turning the tide in that election. My name is Richard Hill. This is First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio. You are tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org.